Dr. Seuss is one of my favorite children's authors. I love his nonsensical characters in nonsensical situations. And I love the way his nonsense so often gets right to the heart of matters. He has this knack of telling it like it is, of revealing what it is that makes us as human beings tick. The Sneetches that we just heard is one of those stories. Yes, it's about crazy imaginary creatures, some with stars on their bellies and some without. But it's also about something more. It's a story about us and our propensity to measure ourselves against others. It's about our need, our striving to be better than. As long as we are smarter, braver, stronger, wiser, more successful, more esteemed than, then we can feel good about ourselves. In today's scripture passage, we see that even Jesus' disciples were not immune to it. The scripture passage from Mark begins with two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, who were brothers, coming to him with a special request. Teacher, they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. You know, as I studied this passage, that sentence really struck me. I mean, what kind of request is that? Jesus, give us whatever we ask for. What gives these guys the right to ask that of Jesus? Do they think that Jesus owes them something or that they're entitled to get whatever they want from him? Quite frankly, if I'd been Jesus, I would have been really irritated by that request. But Jesus doesn't appear to be bothered. I'm impressed with his gentle and wise response. Well, what is it that you want me to do for you? James and John have a ready answer. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. In other words, arrange it so that when your kingdom comes, we will hold the positions of the highest honor. They envision that in Jesus' kingdom, just as it is in their current kingdom, that there will be a social hierarchy, a hierarchy of importance. And they want to be placed at the top. This concern about self-importance keeps raising its ugly head among the disciples. Just a short while ago, in Mark 9, just a chapter before this one, Jesus finds his disciples arguing. The point of contention? Who among them is the greatest? Well, Jesus tries to settle the dispute. He sits the twelve down and he tells them, So, you want to be the greatest? You want to be first? Then you need to be last. You need to be servant of all. Well, apparently the disciples didn't get it. They may have heard the words, but the words apparently didn't sink in because here they are in chapter 10 having the same conversation again. Now, at this point, if 
I were Jesus, and it's probably good I'm not, I would have lost my patience. I can see myself rolling my eyes and saying, I cannot believe that you are still arguing about this. Look, we've got some tough times ahead. We've got some significant obstacles to face. We cannot waste our energies fighting with each other about stuff like this. Now, not surprisingly, Jesus is abundantly more patient than I am. Instead of reacting, he turns their question around. He asks them to think about what it is that they're requesting. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? He asks. The cup that Jesus refers to is a metaphor for suffering. It is the cup that he shares at the Last Supper, his blood poured out for many. And it is the cup that he begs God to take from him as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, the cup of his suffering and death. Are you ready to drink this cup? He asks. And are you ready to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, the baptism, the baptism that Jesus received in the Jordan River by John the Baptist was a baptism of commitment and obedience to God and to God's way. And because of where that commitment and obedience has taken him, he was about to receive a new baptism, a baptism of blood, his death. Were these two disciples ready to participate in this baptism? Yes, they respond. We are ready. I, mean, I have to wonder, did these disciples really understand what Jesus was talking about? In one sense, how could they not? Jesus had brought up this uncomfortable subject of his suffering and his death no fewer than three times during the last several weeks. He was very clear about the rough road ahead. Yet they just didn't seem to get it. They were so focused on Jesus' glory that those words about suffering just seemed to bounce off. Regardless of their ability or their lack of ability to come to terms with Jesus' suffering and what it would mean for them, James and John's response to Jesus is firm. Yes, we are ready. And Jesus' response to them is equally firm. Then you will drink the cup that I drink, and you will be baptized in my baptism. But, he adds, and there is a but, to sit at my right or left hand is not mine to grant. We don't hear how James and John react to Jesus' response. We do, however, hear how the other ten disciples react when they catch wind of this private little conversation. They are angry. The understanding is, you know what? 
they are in this thing together. And then these two brothers go out and they try to grab the best for themselves at the expense of the rest of them. Their anger says that something important is at stake for them. And what is at stake is their place in the social hierarchy, their place in that hierarchy of importance. And the stakes are high. Honor, power, and importance are things that are, they all hungered for. And unfortunately, according to their worldview, there was a limited supply of those things for which they were hungry. There was a limited supply of honor and prestige and power. And if someone took more than their share, which was what James and John were proposing to do, there was less for everyone else. And so the disciples were understandably angry that these two brothers would go behind their backs and get first dibs on what they all really wanted. In their minds, there simply wasn't enough honor, there wasn't enough greatness to go around. And that perceived shortage set up a dynamic of competition and rivalry among them. Now, competition and rivalry is probably familiar to most of us, although we might not want to admit it. For many of us, our first experience with competition came in our family of origin, where we competed with our siblings for the attention and rewards and love of our parents. That competitive drive was likely nurtured along when we entered school. There we competed for rewards given to those who got the best grades or who drew the best pictures or who were the best athletes or musicians or were the most popular kids in the class. And as adults, the drive to compete stays with us. And it often expresses itself, I think, through the houses that we buy, the cars that we drive, the jobs that we seek, the activities that we push our kids into. We can't help but absorb the messages that our culture sends us, that greatness, success, our very worth depends on making it to the top, no matter what we have to do to get there. Even if it means spinning the truth or telling outright lies, even if it means slinging mud at our rivals or engaging in unethical practices or using rather than valuing people. Ironically, in the end, all our striving to get to the top might not get us to the place where we had hoped. As Catholic monk, mystic, and writer Thomas Merton once pointed out, we may spend our whole life climbing a ladder of success only to find out that when we get to the top that our ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. This, I think, is where the disciples find themselves, trying to climb a ladder that is leaning against the wrong wall, each wanting the position of greatest honor, greatest importance, 
fighting with each other to get it. Jesus knows all this. He sees into his disciples' hearts. He sees their longing for greatness, and he sees how this longing is causing them to struggle with each other. And as they struggle, Jesus comes to them, and he offers them a way out. If you're looking for greatness, he says, you're going about it the wrong way. I know, we all know that in the kingdom of this world, those who are great are those who are on top. And those who are on the top think it's their right to lord it over all of those below them. But in my kingdom, things are set up differently. In my kingdom, greatness is not measured by how much power one has over others. In my kingdom, prestige isn't calculated by how high one is in the pecking order. In my kingdom, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Why? Because this is what Jesus' life was all about. In Jesus' own words in Mark 10, 45, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We hear another version in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Through this act of self-giving love, we're giving a glimpse of what greatness in God's kingdom is all about. It's not about grasping for power and recognition. It's about emptying ourselves of those ego-clamoring needs and offering ourselves in humble service to God and to each other. Through Jesus, we not only see what this greatness is about, through Jesus, we experience it firsthand. As we come to know God's great love for us, lavished upon us in Jesus, and as we allow that love to live within us and grow within us, we come to see, we come to know that greatness is not something that we work to achieve. It is something each and every one of us is gifted with right from the start. In God's eyes, we are 
all great, of infinite value, filled to the brim with worth. And we are great not because of what we do or how high we climb. We are great because God loves us through and through, because we are precious in God's sight. This kind of greatness is not something we have to fight over, as if there's not enough to go around. It is given to us from God's overflowing storehouse of love. We need only accept that gift and allow that gift, allow that love to shape our lives. And you know what? When we do, something happens. We no longer need to direct our energies toward proving ourselves or to making a name for ourselves or making ourselves look good. We don't even need to prove our worth by trying hard to be good, humble servants. Mennonites can get into that trap. Because in the end, it isn't about proving anything. It's about opening ourselves to God's grace, to God's steadfast love, and trusting that that love is enough. May we each find that enough. Right where we are, in the midst of whatever we may be striving toward or struggling with, may the ground of God's love calm our anxious striving and bring us contentment and peace. Amen.